Good morning, church. I'm going to tell you something that is probably going to blow your mind. I love food. I know it sounds, I know. You're like, a skinny guy like you loves food? That's crazy. No, it's, it's true. I know. I'm blowing your mind. Um, I love food. I love to eat food with people. I love small little hole-in-the-wall restaurants over big chains. I love to refer people to places. I love to cook people food. I love to share good things with people. I, it's just kind of a weird thing. And I love food. And what's really encouraging to me about that is I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure you do too. Um, if I haven't eaten with you, it needs to happen. And one of the things I've realized reading scripture is that Jesus loves food too. In fact, food is like at the center of Jesus and what it looks like to follow Jesus. And really the center of what it looks like to do what Jesus did. I mean, we're the kind of church where we, we believe that to follow Jesus means to be with Jesus, become like Jesus and do what Jesus did. And fortunately for us, Jesus loved food and he loved to eat with people and he loved to drink with people. And last week, we talked about how Jesus confronted the scribes or what the scripture called the teachers of the law. This week, we're actually going to see Jesus confronting the Pharisees, which is a different group of people. And he's confronting them because of their, uh, I guess, I guess you could say he wasn't too happy with the people he was having a meal with. And so we're going to look at chapter 2, verse 13. We're going to start here. It says, once, Jesus, once again, Jesus went outside, out beside the lake, and, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. Verse 14, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now, this guy Levi, he worked for Herod Antipas. Now, if you're confused, there's, there's a lot of Herods in the Gospels. I mean, you're probably most familiar with Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was in charge when Jesus was born. And that whole scene about Herod and chasing down, trying to find Jesus, all that kind of stuff, that's Herod the Great. Herod the Great died in 4 BC. And he split up his kingdom. Uh, there was Herod Archelaus. Then there was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee. Now between Galilee, and we'll show you a map here, between Galilee and uh, Golanitis are two different sections. Galilee is a Jewish area. Golanitis is more of a Roman uh, Greek area. And to cross over from one section to another, you actually had to pay a tax or think of it as a toll. Not only for entrance and passage, but on export and import products. So if you were selling products across the border, you paid a tax. And tax collectors were used by the government, who were Jewish men, 
They were used by Herod to collect tax on goods and services crossing over the border. And here's where Levi comes in. Levi is a tax collector, and he's not popular. In fact, he's looked at as kind of a traitor, someone who's working with the enemy, someone who's working against the people of God. And so he's in collusion with the Roman, Roman Empire because he's working for, working for them to get taxes. And he's an enemy of the Jewish people, and he's an enemy of God, according to Jews. He would have been hated by everybody. And it's kind of like that classic would-you-rather line. Would you rather be rich and lonely or poor and loved? Levi was rich and lonely. And Jesus says, hey, you, come and follow me. Come and be my apprentice. Just like he asked Peter and Andrew, James and John. Watch what happens. Verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And this is a big deal. Meals, okay, all throughout scripture are a sign of God's fellowship, God's favor. And so when you had a meal with somebody, it was as if you were uh, equal with them. Check out Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. This is huge. This is about God's, how God sees feasting. It says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast, rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. See, this is Jesus' vision of the kingdom. This is what it looks like in Jesus' mind's eye about what the kingdom looks like. And it starts with a feast. It starts with a table and it starts with food and people. Luke 13 says, people will come from east and west and north and south, basically come from everywhere, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Further on in scripture and revelation, it says, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst, the sun will not be down on them, nor any scorching heat. So, when Jesus sits down at a table to eat, okay? He is enacting the vision of the kingdom of God. He's actually putting on display, this is what it looks like. This is what the future is coming. It's kind of this idea of divine hospitality. Basically, he is saying, when he sits down to eat with people, he's saying that this is an invitation, okay? This is an invitation to the kingdom of God. So here's the problem. The problem is, is that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so like we talked about last week, the scribes had an idea of what was right and what was wrong based on scripture. The Pharisees were the ones that kind of took this um, uh, to the people. 
And so tax collectors and sinners, they were kind of holding the people of God back. Tax collectors and sinners were actually holding the people of God back from experiencing what God really had for them. And that was full ownership, full freedom in their land. And so anyone who clearly, just by their outward appearance or their outward actions, were not keeping the 613 laws in the Old Testament, they were holding the people back. So these were criminals, drunks, you know, lepers, like Dan talked about. The poor, I mean, the poor were uh, not able to travel and pay for certain pieces of the sacrificial scheme and the strategy. And so, since they weren't able to do that, they weren't actually able to keep the law. And then there was just the apathetic amongst them. The apathetic that were just like, they don't really care. They're kind of done with this whole Israel is a special nation thing anymore. And so this was the whole category of sinners, right? What scholars call the Ahamarets is actually a Hebrew term for people of the land. Just the, the riffraff. And so in verse 16, it says, When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees, so these weren't just scribes, but these were actually rabbis saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So imagine everything is outdoors and you would, for the most part, eat outside, especially in a courtyard. And, and on the edge of the courtyard are people who weren't invited. And so they see what's going on inside. They see that there's a meal happening. They see Jesus there. They see, they don't really have a problem with the fact that it's a party. They actually have a problem with who's on the guest lists and why is Jesus hanging out with them. And so most of us grew up thinking uh, this, the Pharisees are, are bad. They're actually evil. They're actually the uh, antagonist of the story, right? And we're kind of, situated to think that way. But actually, they were kind of the heroes of the day. They were looked up to. They were respected. They were followed. You know, much like the way in many of the last couple centuries, the evangelical pastor or the evangelical Christian was looked at. Like, they, they kept uh, their family, you know, looking good and and going to church and, you know, just, you know, reading the Bible and, and keeping the Bible, like, special. Uh, and, and so they were kind of the good guys of Jesus' day. And so, like the scribes last week we talked about, the Pharisees started out good, started out well-meaning. Think of Ezra in the Old Testament. He was kind of this, in a, in a sense, like a, the first official Pharisee in this line of Pharisees. But somewhere along the way, they kind of lost sight of what God's heart was for people and for sinners and, and the people on kind of the margin, those people on, on the edge. And yes, they had a burning passion for holiness and to keep things true and, and, and kind of aimed in the right direction. And, and I think in some ways we, we, we would do well to recapture some of that. But their agenda 
was to somehow get all of Israel to follow the Torah for one day, just one day. And if they could somehow get the people to all just be ship for one day, and they were pretty obsessive compulsive about it, um, they were, the hope was that God would deliver them. Now, what they did was they, take, they took things further. And so they applied the priest, the priestly rules and the priestly rituals actually onto the people. So the thinking was that if you were a Jewish head of your household, that you were, in a sense, a mini priest. And your home was a mini temple. And your table was a mini altar. And so now you were like a priest on temple duty. And if you were on temple duty, you could go nowhere near somebody who was unclean and somebody who was going to bring the people of Israel down. And so what happens is, is they created this culture where sinners were shut out and unwanted and the holy were inside where God was. And in fact, the, the actual word Pharisee is actually this idea of the set apart ones. And so what started out good actually became a disaster. Here's why that's important. Who you ate with was symbolic. It was symbolic for who was in and who was out. And who was holy and who was unholy. So a rabbi would never eat with a tax collector. For a little bit of background, listen to this quote. It says, In the East, even today, to invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. In Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in a meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house had spoken over the unbroken bread. The inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation Achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. Meaning when you would eat a meal with someone, a sinner, it actually meant that you forgave them, that you brought them into your world. And so here's the thing is we march towards Easter and Good Friday. Uh, You need to understand something. Jesus, okay, gets killed precisely because of the people he ate with, the people he fellowshiped with, that he had, he broke bread with. He gets killed because of this. And so some of, you know, some of, it's hard to get our minds wrapped around this because Jesus has a whole other take on food. Um, and, he, and his take on food is that that it's God's great welcome. It's God's open arms to people. That part of his strategy is 
opening his arms. And so on, in verse 17, it says, On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is a well-known proverb of Jesus' day. And I think it's actually a well-known proverb now of our day. Because when you think about a doctor has to be with the sick. Not just because it's their job, because it's their calling. It's because of their, it's, it's kind of what makes them tick. And so we see all these news reports right now with the, with the virus and doctors and not having enough masks and things like that. And there's this duty-bound, like, calling in their lives. And they say, I've, I've got to be with my patients. I've got to be with the sick. And this is how God views sinners. This is how God views us. He wants to be with us. He wants to be close to us. He wants to draw near to us. And so here's what's interesting. Look at the flip side. Check out this next verse, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? See, here's the thing. Pharisees fasted every Monday and every Thursday. But what's interesting is the law only required them to fast one time a year. One time. And they were fasting 104 times a year. It's just a little bit of a difference. <laughs> no wonder why they called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard. Because Jesus loved to eat with people. He was around people all the time. Uh, one scholar said that Jesus is either going to a meal at a meal or coming from a meal. Another scholar says that if you, if you can read the Gospels without getting hungry, you're not paying attention because Jesus is feasting all the way through it. He's with people all the way through it, and he's feasting with people that he shouldn't be, according to Pharisees. And then, so look at the difference. Feasting in Scripture is about celebration. It's about partying. It's about, it, it just, it's just about thanking God and gratitude. Mourning is usually tied with fasting. And so you can see the juxtaposition. Jesus is saying, I'm here to celebrate. God is here. Jesus says in verse 19, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. Jesus is saying there's basically, there's a time to feast. And it's now. It's not time to fast. And, and fasting, that time will come. He's saying right now, God's on the planet. Like God is here. God is, this is what you've been waiting for. So we can celebrate that God's reign has come near, that God's rule is breaking in. And he gives two word pictures for what this looks like. Verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. I mean, everybody knows this. Who would do that, right? Otherwise, <laughs> I have no idea. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And then he gives another word picture, and it's this. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. This is something that we're not used to either. This is another image. Basically... They would pour new wine into a brand new skin. And usually it was the skin, it was the hide of a goat. 
And when it was f new, when it was just brand new hide, uh, you would pour the wine into this wineskin and you would close it off and the fermenting process would continue and it would expand this, this kind of uh, uh, elastic skin of the goat. Now, an old wineskin had been dried. I mean, over time, it just became hard and stiff and you couldn't put new wine into that because it would just burst it. What Jesus is saying is God is up to something new, brand new, not something old and cliche, not something tired and cruel and legalistic, that God is actually up to something new and it's fresh and it's creative and it's open, inclusive, it's, it's new wine, it's the new thing that God is up to and he's painting this picture through food, through eating and drinking. There's a guy named Tim Chester and, and last year, we, we talked about him quite a bit. We did a whole series on this. So if you missed some of this, I would encourage you to go back. But he, his whole idea in his book, A Meal with Jesus, is that Jesus came, in Luke 19, it says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That this was God's plan, Jesus' plan from the beginning. And that was what Jesus' mission was. And then it talks about his method in Luke 7. It says that he came eating and drinking. Like his mission was come to seek and save the lost, and he did it by eating and drinking. And it's like this statement of purpose, and it's a statement of method. And so some of you are sitting here thinking, you're like, wait a second, Ryan, stop. We're under quarantine. Why are you talking about eating and drinking with people? We're not supposed to do that. There's viruses, get a clue. And so here's what I'm trying to get at with us. There will be a time in the coming weeks, Lord willing, that we are slowly emerging out of our homes, that, we, that spring is coming, it's heating up, that this virus will one day pass through and it may take some time. I get all of that stuff, but, but you and I as human beings created in the image of God are actually created to have community and to eat with people and to be around people and to pursue people. And some of you are noticing this in your own life. You're pent up. Some of, even you introverts, you're freaking out. You got cabin fever. You're like walking in the neighborhood. You're talking to people you normally didn't talk to before from a distance. <laughs> And the reason why we're talking about this is not only is it next in the story, but I think that there, there's some burning desire in all of us to actually begin to see and to interact with people again. And you and I as followers of Jesus are actually to take eating and drinking seriously. Like it's part of what God is doing. And three quick points. One is this. Meals are a celebration of grace. And, and this is where... It gets real. For some of us, we've been so busy and flying around, families, and we've been doing the whole grab something quick, eat it in the car. It's hard to get together as a family. And now we're actually experiencing what it looks like to eat together. Like our dishwasher is going all the time right now because we are home. We are stuck there. We're cooking together. We're eating together. 
And it's actually a new family rhythm for us. And what's interesting is in the Old Testament, almost all the time you read this phrase, and eat it in the presence of Yahweh. And this comes from the Levitical law, and you find it in Deuteronomy a lot, where after the sacrifice, usually you bring a sacrifice, and and some of it would go on the altar and get burned up, and, and then some of it was returned to you to eat. It was almost as if God was encouraging us to eat together, not only together, but with him. It says, and eat it in the presence of Yahweh, as if Yahweh is at your table. And I think this is a moment for us to celebrate what we have and to celebrate together as a family, maybe build a new rhythm in together, this idea of celebrating life under God's rule. And so when we pray before a meal, and, and, and it's just part of what we're hardwired to do is to thank God. Not only thank God for food and the provision, but thank God for His grace because we can't survive without either. And one of the things we're seeing is people getting really creative with celebrations during this whole time. And I don't know if you've seen this on TV, but people are doing drive through birthday celebrations where they have a friend who's it's their birthday and so that friend will be out front and then people will drive by and and sing to them and cheer for them and and it's just this beautiful creative way to celebrate because we we all have the desire inside of us to celebrate each other to celebrate God's goodness um, and that's part of it second thing is this meals spark community they actually people love to eat together and the people that eat together stay together there's something about resetting this in our lives it's it's a it's a it's a really simple but profound thing listen to this quote from a guy named scott barchi he says it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the mediterranean basin in the first century of our era meal times were far more than occasions for individuals just to consume nourishment, being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, A meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. So this is why we encourage groups to eat together. This is why we encourage uh, families. We we grow closer together when we eat together. We grow closer as a community, as a neighborhood, as as a church when we eat together. And here's the thing that's so significant about this. This shows up in the book of Acts. The early church actually, it's recorded saying they they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, which means eating together, not just communion. A lot of people interpret that as as the Eucharist or or doing a communion thing together. No, it it was eating together at the table, to fellowship and to prayer. And so this is really one of the four pillars of the early church. And what's interesting is it says over and over again, that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Why? Because this was an attractive place to be. There's something about a gathering of people eating together, the fellowship and the joy and the encouragement and the, the praying for one another 
and, and, and some of this, obviously, with teaching and all that, it's just a, it's a beautiful thing. It's part of what the church is supposed to be all about. And the third thing I want to say before we wrap up is this. Meals are an invitation for the kingdom. I mean, it literally is what Jesus is all about. And there's no better way to carry the kingdom forward than to eat and drink with somebody. Uh, there's this great Australian chef and theologian named Simon Carey Holt. And he wrote this. I just love this. He says, it's good to be reminded that the table is a very ordinary place, a place so routine and every day that it's easily overlooked as a place of ministry. At its base, hospitality is about providing a place for God's spirit to move, setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation, providing a context in which people feel loved and welcome and where God's spirit can be work in their lives. Hospitality, he says, is a very ordinary business, but it is the ordinariness as its real worth. Whatever it looks like, your own table is a sacred place. Here's the thing. Yeah, I know we're on lockdown. But I want you to begin to imagine what this looks like for you. Because I think we can shape the city by the people we eat with. We can actually shape and change the city by the people we eat with. Eating with people who do not follow Jesus is central to following Jesus. It's actually part of the core of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And all of us can do this. And this is why, programmatically at our church, this is why we don't have a lot of events. We don't have a lot of church gatherings. Well, I mean, we don't have a building, so that helps. But <laughs> I, I shared with, this, with you guys um, a little while ago that I would rather you invite people to a barbecue at your house than invite them to church on Sunday. I that's where the magic happens. That's where it is so important for us to follow Jesus. We really believe that as a follower of Jesus, we're called to eat with people who do not yet know him. And so here's the takeaway. I want you to begin to imagine and be creative. And some of you are uh, bumping into neighbors as you're out on walks trying to get out of the house and you're, you're connecting with them. Um, I, I want you to begin to imagine uh, the people that could be around your table. And I want you to, some of you, if you have kids, ask your kids, hey, if you could have anybody over for dinner, who would you have? And see what they say. It might be actually a prompting of the spirit through your children as to who you should pursue as a family. Partner with someone. Maybe if you're single or, or you know, you're, you just don't have a big family or partner together with people in our church or in your neighborhood. Think about what is your go-to meal? Like, what could you put together quick and good? Um, and, and there will be things that you're going to miss, and I'm going to miss about this time we're in right now. I was out for a walk yesterday, um, and I ran into a neighbor, and we were just, like, talking about how crazy this whole time was. And, and then we started to both kind of admit, like, why haven't we hung out? 
why haven't we had dinner together? Why haven't we had a drink on the porch together? Why haven't we just been together? And so him and I exchanged numbers. Um, we're, we're both like committed to that happening. And um, the, other, the other thing was interesting is we had someone over at our home uh, this last weekend who was doing work at our house and we invited them to stick around for dinner. And it's kind of awkward, like, okay, do they have the virus? Do we have the virus? But it was, it was just like cool because we talked and we laughed and we helped actually uh, box up some meals for people in our church. We had gloves on, the whole thing. It was like totally CDC approved. But the point is, is that we got this chance to connect with this person over a meal. And it was powerful. And we have this, actually, I, I feel like a new relationship with them. I'll just close by saying this. We, we serve a God who made food and called it good. And if you feel like this is a, a moment for you to be creative and to think about what you could do um, as a family, I want to I encourage you to push into that. And let me just say this. Like maybe you've got a little bit of Pharisee in you and you're like, I don't know if I could eat with this person or that person. Maybe God's calling you to actually go outside of the circles I've even talked about. Maybe there's somebody in your world that you go, I don't know how I could have a meal with them. I don't even know if they'd show up. I don't even know if I could go to where they go. Uh, maybe that's God's spirit pushing it to you. And then I will just say this. Maybe you feel like you're more on the tax collector sinner side of this. Maybe you feel like you're not worthy enough to, have, to really have that kind of a relationship with Jesus. Jesus wants to have dinner with you. <laughs> that sounds weird, but Jesus wants to be in fellowship with you. Uh, maybe you're a skeptic. It's okay. It's totally fine. Jesus still wants to have dinner with you. Maybe you're, you feel like you're a failure. You've just blown it all. Jesus still wants to have a dinner with you. Maybe you're lonely. Jesus still wants to have dinner with you. We want to have dinner with you. Maybe you're like, well, I'm gay. Jesus wants to have a dinner with you. We want to have dinner with you. As we come to the table, as we prepare for communion, as you prepare for communion in your home, this is a table that is open, that God invites us to. And, and will you give us, God, this heart and the creative imagination in this moment for our world, for our neighbors, for anyone who is far from you? God, we want to seek and save. We want to seek and reach out to those who are lost. And you've just given us a beautiful picture of what it looks like. We pray these things in your name. Amen.